0: So when I was a kid, the elementary school that I attended, every spring had a track and field meet. And didn't matter who you are, what you wanted to do or didn't want to do, every student had to participate in the track meet. And the rules were, you had to pick three events. So they had all kinds of races, short races, long races. They had the jumping events. And uh, you had to participate, but you got to choose which events you wanted to be in. And you had to choose three of them. So as a kid, I always had a strategy when I thought about what I wanted to do every spring for track and field. And my strategy was this. I just wanted to do the races that were the shortest. I would rather expend all of my energy in a short amount of time and get it over with, then have to run for a really, really long time um, and and just kind of expend my energy over uh, a longer period. So uh, I always picked the two shortest races that we had in there, the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and then I would do one of the jumping events, long jump or high jump or something like that. Again, my thinking was I don't want to be running for a really long time I would rather just give it everything that I have for a very short amount of time and then be done and then it's over, just give it all my energy. And so that was my strategy in it. Now the older that we got, eventually we got to a place where uh, we didn't just have the spring track meet, we also had cross country in the fall. And cross country by its very nature doesn't have short races. It's all about running long distances. And so they would make us run or if we couldn't run to walk um, really long distances out on a trail somewhere and we had to do that. And I realized at that point we were a little bit older, but I realized at that point that there was no option to strategize the way that you did for a short race. You couldn't just give it everything that you got, that seems kind of obvious, for a short amount of time because it's a really long race. And so if you expend that much energy right at the beginning, you know that later on in the race, you're just going to fall apart. You just can't sustain that in the long haul. And so you had to start thinking about pacing yourself. What is a, a level of activity and performance that I can maintain for a really long time? I can't just give it everything that I have. And actually, if some of you know this a lot better than I do, but the higher you get up into to performance running and figuring it out, whether it's short races or long races, there's actually a lot of strategy uh, in figuring out our pace. What is the pace that I'm gonna run? It's not just about you have to go to A to B, point A to point B. It's not just about the distance distance that you're running. It's trying to figure out the work in between and how do we manage our energy levels in between. So if I go out uh, just a little bit too fast in a long race, In that first kilometer, and and they've had these studies where the percentages of your effort level are actually really small differences can make a big difference for you later in the race. Even just a few percentage points of going a little bit too fast can knock out so much energy early in a race that later in the race you don't have enough tank to continue your pace. And so you've got to be really careful about how fast you're running or uh, not running to make sure that you're maintaining your energy levels, because like I said, it's not just about, oh, I got to go from point A to point B and it's this distance. It's managing your energy and your resources in between points in A, A and B to make sure that you're running the race the way that you want it to. And so that you're getting to the place that you want to in the time that you're able to. And, uh, you know, when it comes to pace, uh, It's not just about running where we talk about pace. In fact, as we become adults, we start to talk about the pace of our lives a lot. What's the pace of my life? And in some ways, it's similar to running because we're thinking our life isn't just about going from A to B, birth to death. It's about how we manage everything in between. It's about how we use our resources. It's about how we use our energy, where we choose to expend energy and at what points we expend those energy. It's how we are living out our lives and managing the activities that make up our lives between point A and point B. And today we're starting a new series where we're calling it uh, The Pace of Grace. And uh, what I want to talk about is as followers of Jesus or people who might be investigating the way of Jesus and what it looks like to follow Jesus... How do we make those decisions about the pace of our lives? What's going to dictate the pace of our lives? And we're calling this series, The Pace of Grace, because I believe if we really, if we really investigate how Jesus calls us to live, it's grace that's going to help us to set our pace, to decide our strategy for life. And how we're going to move through it. And it's going to be what helps us uh, to, to perform the way that we want to, to live our lives the way that we want to. And today I want to start out by asking the question how do we know whether we're living at the pace of grace or whether we've allowed other strategies to dictate how we're living our lives? And in this series, what we're going to be doing is working through the book of Ephesians, which is a New Testament uh, letter to a group of Christians, early Christians, who lived in Ephesus. And so today I want to start right in chapter one, and we're going to see that. There's this theme of grace that goes all the way through the book, Uh, but today we start right at the very beginning, and here's how this letter starts. It starts by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So uh, what we have here is uh, a really common formula for writing a letter. So we have the beginning in, in uh, the first century in this part of the world. If somebody was writing a formal, formal letter like this is to a group of people, uh, there was sort of a, a three-part, very simple formula. It would be an introduction to the writer. Uh, some kind of introduction to the recipient or acknowledgement of the recipient and then some sort of really simple greeting. Now, for us, most of us we've largely lost the formula of writing letters. We don't even write letters. We're now down to emails or even texts. And uh, many of us, we don't even do a bunch of the formulas. We just kind of start with, hey, and we kind of launch into whatever reason why we might be writing to somebody. Uh, Maybe in some of your workplaces, you have a bit more uh, of formalities that come into how you're supposed to address uh, maybe a a coworker or uh, an employer or a client. And you might have some formalities built in. But in this part of the world, that was basically it so here's who's writing here's who's receiving and then a really simple greeting That would sometimes just be greetings or greetings of joy. Something simple like that. But what we find in the New Testament is that when we get letters that are addressed from Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, he often expands this. And you say, ah, who cares? It's not a big deal. It's just an introduction. But the fact that he expands it from what would have been normal uh, and very common formula just should have a stop for a second and say, oh, why is he doing that? And what are the common things that Paul does um, to kind of enhance that greeting? Because it actually is important. So what we find is that Paul's letters are distinct in that he expands the simple formula to include his relationship to Christ and the status of the recipients, their relationship, as well as adding in distinctly Christian content. So all that means is it's really important for us to say, Paul could have just said, uh, I, Paul, write to you, Christ, uh, uh, people of Ephesus, greetings. But he does more than that. And what that means to us is that he's actually going to locate himself in relationship to Jesus. He's going to locate the recipients into their status. And then he gives a greeting that actually tells us more than just a simple greetings. But it's actually more specific and has content that is specific to the Christian life. So today I want to explore some of those things in this simple greeting. Number one, we ask the question, who is Paul? Who is um, the one writing this? He says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So number one, he is an apostle. Apostle refers first to uh, the the twelve disciples of Jesus, those who actually followed. The physical Jesus in his ministry. And then later, Paul is added in an apostle. And you can actually see in some of his letters that he has to prove to people that he's an apostle because some people aren't buying it because he wasn't part of the 12 disciples. But one of the key characteristics of an apostle, of what gave these people authority on behalf of Jesus. To teach the ways of Jesus in the early church and to model that and to have the authority in the local church was that they were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. And so we have some of those early disciples at least 11 of them outside of Judas, and then there's another one added after that, who had been eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. So that's part of what gave them authority. Well, how are you the authority to be this leader? And, and how do you have the authority to teach and that we should take you seriously? And it's like, well, not only do we follow around Jesus, but we've seen and experienced the risen Jesus. So for Paul, though he wasn't part of that early group, this is his story, is Paul was a high-ranking Jewish official, so a religious leader. He actually hated Christians. He hated the whole Christian movement so much so that he was uh, persecuting them and actually part of a group that was putting to death Christians for the way that they were living and the things that they were saying about who God is and how that was affecting the religious uh, landscape of their day. Until one day, he encountered the risen Jesus. He had an experience with the risen Jesus walking around the road and he met him and that experience transformed him. He did a complete 180 degree turn in his life and he turned from hating Christians and persecuting them to becoming a follower of Jesus and an apostle. And this is so, so, such a huge change that now he's saying, "I I am an apostle. I did this complete change. I now believe... That Jesus is the Christ, that means the Messiah sent to save the world. And this is not just an idea that I came up with, he says. But I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. I've given my entire life to following him, teaching him. And this is all by the will of God. In other words, I didn't just come up with this idea. I didn't just say, I'm going to appoint myself as an apostle. And I'm going to now teach Christian doctrine. No, no, no. He, he says, and this is all what God has given to me, authority that God has given to me. And I accepted it, not willingly at first, but through this powerful transformation of Jesus coming and speaking to me, uh, actually interacting with the risen Jesus and now changing my entire life. This is what he believes to be what God is doing in him and in the world. So for Paul, who he is, this is really important, is based on who Jesus is. Not, I am not Paul the Pharisee. I am not Paul the leader I am not Paul, the one who has authority based on my position in the temple or the synagogue or whatever else. This is not Paul. Here's who I am in my family. In fact, in other letters, he'll talk about all of these different credentials, which would have held a lot of weight in his culture. He says, none of those things are primarily who I am. It's not that they cease to be part of who I am, but, but that's not my ultimate identity. My ultimate identity now, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's important. Paul is locating his identity in Jesus and in following the will of, of God. That's just really important and is very transformational for who Paul is. And so instead of just saying Paul, writing to the Ephesians, that's why he's kind of going into all that and and kind of building up who he is locating himself uh, in terms of relationship with Jesus Christ. Then it comes down to the recipients. Who are the recipients? The church of Ephesus, people in Ephesus he says specifically to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So let's just uh, take a look at that again, because he could have just said, uh, I, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, but he goes into much more detail. First, he calls them saints, which literally means holy ones. A lot of people, when we hear about holiness or holy ones, we assume that that's primarily a moral thing. We're going to get to the morality of Christians later in this letter. It's actually really important. But first we're drilling down deeper. And it, it, we, Christianity is really not about somebody coming along and saying, you should try to be a good person by doing these things. It is uh, much more uh, inherently something that we deal with our identity first because out of our identity is going to flow what we do. So what we do in our morality is very important. Paul's going to get specific about that later in the letter. But we got to first drill down on the identity piece. So holy ones. We know that holy doesn't just mean a certain level of morality because in the Bible all throughout... Um, not just people, but there's things that are called holy. There's certain instruments of worship or parts of the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament where it talks about these are, are holy things. So what does it mean to be holy? Holy refers to the fact that something belongs to God. So that's why certain objects were holy, because they're used in the worship of God. This is not just something that is ordinary or normal. It's something for God, belongs to God, which means that holy ones are saints, are ones who belong to God, an important part of somebody's identity to think, oh, I am someone who belongs to God. That's a core part of my identity. Secondly, it says uh, that they're faithful. That simply means those who exercise faith. Again, and this could be true of people who are called faithful, that it's part of their morality, and it will be. But first and foremost, what Paul is referring to here is people who live out of trust. So when they they talk about who they are and how they make decisions and ask those questions, it's first and foremost about, I'm somebody who lives out of faith. I trust. I trust. I trust that Jesus points us in the best direction. So that's how I make decisions about how I live. That's how I set my pace in life. How do I have self-esteem? What do I know about myself? Well, I trust in who Jesus says that I am. So he calls me beloved. How do, I tr- how do I know that I'm accepted? Well, I trust that Jesus forgives, forgives me? And so on and so on. We could go through all the things of, of Jesus that, that he calls his followers and, and says, this is who you are. And the people who are faithful and holy ones are people who say, Jesus, I trust you for those things. And I'm going to live out of that trust. That becomes the foundation for my life. And not just a generalized trust, which we might think of as wishful thinking. I'm going to trust that everything's okay and I'm a pretty good person and life is going to go okay for me. That might often not work, obviously. But specifically, we locate that trust in Christ Jesus. And for Paul, this, this phrase, in Christ, actually is a, a, a game-changing little phrase that we read over and over and over. In Greek, is just on Christo. In Christ, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? So uh, people who are holy and faithful now find themselves in Christ Jesus. It means that Jesus becomes the archetype and the model for humanity. Who is it that we're supposed to be? He is the beloved son. He is holy. He is accepted in God's eyes. He's empowered to live a spiritual life. And Paul uses this phrase over and over in Christ. That means that the people of faith have a corporate identity. They are joined together in Christ. Other ways Paul talks about this is the body of Christ So we're we're all together, just like a body. We might be different parts of the body, but we have a corporate or a collective identity. Sometimes you're just called the church or the assembly of people. We come together. What this means is, and we have been so uh, conditioned in North American culture and modern culture to think of everything very individualistically. Who am I? I am Dave. And even our faith, we maybe think of our faith very individualistically. And we sometimes boil it down to, I, as an individual, have a faith. And so I believe certain things and I do certain things. And hopefully that means that God is going to admit me into heaven one day. But for Paul, it's so much bigger than that. And our identity becomes wrapped up in a corporate identity. And when I say corporate, I don't mean like a business. I mean collective, like a community. That we now identify as in Christ. Sometimes he'll say we're hidden in Christ or we're found in Christ. What that means is we have a collective identity that is all caught up in Christ. Christ is the head. Christ is the definition. Christ is what it's all supposed to look like. And we all play parts of a collective identity that makes us who we are. In other words, we're called to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. I'm not just me. I am still me. My identity as an individual is important. But I am found in Christ. And you're invited to be found in Christ so that we all become the church or the body or the collective corporate identity found in Christ. And you say, so who are you at the core of of who you are. Well, we are the holy faithful people in Christ, which means whoever Christ is, we are. We accept that collective identity and the collective mission. So it's not just me and who I am and what I want to do. It's us together. Those found in Christ, the holy faithful people who live in Christ, to which, by the way, all of us are invited to participate in, to be part of that in Christ communal relationship. It's a little bit like, you know, it's confusing maybe to say, well, what does it mean to have this collective identity? And again, it's so foreign to us because we're so individualistic, more so than most cultures in the history of the world. But it's a little bit like being part of a family or being part of a team. If you're part of a, a sports team, for example, and you're not playing an individualistic sport, you're playing a, a, a team sport, it means that, that first and foremost, it's not that what you do is not important, but what you do is just part of something bigger because you, on a team, you're not just you, you are a team member, which means you win together, which also means you lose together. It means that at the end of the day, the most important thing is not whether you had a good game and I had a bad game and oh, you're a loser and I'm a winner. It's that collectively together, we work better together. And when we come together, what is true for me is true of all of us. So, uh, an example, uh, the New York Yankees baseball team, one of the most famous franchise, sports franchises in all of the world right now. Um, and they have had a tradition all through their history as a baseball team. In their uniforms, they've got numbers to identify specific players. But the New York Yankees, unlike most other teams, they don't put the names of individual players on the back of the jersey. A lot of teams will do that so you know who's who and it'll have a last name on the back of your jersey. New York Yankees don't do that because their tradition is to make sure that people know that we're not just individuals that are striving for individual accolades or individual achievements. Those are fine. But ultimately, we all play for the Yankees and it's all about winning as a team. Your identity as a New York Yankee That's the foundation of it. It's not just about you. So what you do affects all your teammates. And what we do collectively together is who we are. If we're going to win, we're going to win together. We have a corporate identity. And that's what Paul is kind of trying to tell the Christians in Ephesus. And we, I think, do well to accept that as well. To say, you have this collective identity. And what is it? You're in Christ. Which means whatever is true of Christ becomes true of us. When Jesus was baptized then... And he comes up out of the water and God, who who he calls his father, he's got such an an intimate relationship, calls him his beloved son. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us because we are in Christ. We are now part of that corporate identity. The intimacy, and Jesus talks about this all the time, the intimacy he has with the father, he wants us to experience. Because we're now in Christ. We're all in this collective identity together. It's just so, so powerful becomes who we are, holy, loved, accepted. We're the church, called to be the church, all invited to be part of the church, the body of Christ, to be found in Christ. I wonder if uh, many of us need to think through over and over who we are and to once again locate our identities. Because there's a lot of voices out there that become very easy for us to listen to. Who are you? How do you know who you are? Is it what you do? Is it your achievements? Is it your family name? Is it, uh, you know, there's, could be a whole, how you look, how you stack up against other people, what your job title is, how much money you have. There's a million things that start to creep in subtly into the back of our minds that we think identify us. And so when Paul is going through this greeting that we would sometimes just read really quickly through and not think that deeply about, he goes, here's who I am is Paul. I'm an apostle. I'm called to this by God's will. You, you are holy and you are faithful and you are in Christ. Don't ever forget that we're locating ourselves. What story are we part of? What group are we part of? How do we know where we're at and how things are going? Well, it's not just you as an individual. I mean, you can choose to live that way. Many of us do. But you can also choose to be part of this greater identity found in Christ. And then in verse 2, Paul goes on to the greeting part. So again, a lot of times in letters like this, The greeting would be really simple. Greetings, greetings and joy, something like that. Paul gives something that is unique and different and greater. It's really powerful. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we might simply read quickly through that. Ah, it's the beginning of a letter. No big deal. But this is powerful stuff. Hear the greeting portion. First, grace. Grace, he says. Grace means everything is a gift. And the pace of grace means living as if everything is a gift. Everything. Everything is a gift. Grace to you. To live in a complete different mindset where everything is a gift from God our Father. Your conception, every breath that you take, every moment that you have, every task that you are given, every relationship that you have. If you're sitting there right now inside looking around the roof over your head, if you're outside looking around the nature that is all around you, the trees and the grass and the air and the water and your food and your job and your money and your family and your friends, everything is a gift. Do you ever walk outside in the morning and just look around and say, everything is a gift from my Father in heaven, who gives really good gifts to his children. This is grace. This is grace. Don't just boil it down into, uh, you know, a a very specific religious word. It is that all of life is a gift. And then understand this before we just kind of sentimentalize that. Grace is offensive. It's offensive to anyone who believes that they have earned something or deserve something. So it's nice to say, Oh, that's nice. Grace is a gift, but it's very offensive. It was one of the reasons why a lot of people come at Jesus. It's offensive to anybody who says in my life, I have earned this. I deserve this. I've worked for this. These things that I have, the experiences I have are in some way a result of something I've done. Grace is the mindset that goes against that and says all of it is a gift. You can't claim any of it as something that you've earned or deserved. You didn't earn your life. You didn't earn your breath. You didn't earn your health. You haven't even earned your stuff. All of this stuff is a gift. We're given a choice over and over of how we're going to experience life. Grace does not only mean that God is going to let us into heaven. Sometimes we go, we boil grace down to, I'm sort of a bad person, but God's going to graciously forgive us, which means he lets me into heaven. Well, it's much bigger than that. It's seeing that everything in life is a gift. All of life. From point A to point B and beyond, everything is a gift. That's how God works. He's generous. That's what Paul wants for the church. Grace. He wants everything to be grace. That's why wealthy, powerful, well-to-do people often reject Jesus. It's offensive to them. They think, but look at the life I've built and not everybody has done the hard work that I've done. Not everybody deserves what I deserve. Jesus taught us that we often live in a quid pro quo world or a meritocracy that means I do this and I receive this. I do for you, you do for me. That's how the world works, some of us would say. Maybe it does. But Paul, on behalf of Jesus, is saying grace to you. Choose to see things in a completely different way. Life is not about how to get rich, gain position, climb the ladder, network with those who can help us only, but instead to experience the world in a completely different way. Listen to this passage from Jesus, and I won't make too many comments. Just listen to how he says how to live from Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, and none of this is quid pro quo. None of this is just, you know, if people treat you good, you treat them good and you use other people to help advance your life. He says instead, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? If you just live this is what I deserve and you deserve quid pro quo, there's no benefit. For even sinners do uh, love those who love them. That is how the world works. I'm calling you to something different. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, uh, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? That actually makes sense to us. I'm not going to lend to someone who doesn't give me the, the money back. But he says, even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He's now going to call us to something greater. Now, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great because you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. In other words, God is grace. You can experience quid pro quo in the world. Even sinners do that. Everybody does that. But now if you want, there's no real reward. You just get what you deserve, fine. But if you want something greater, if you wanna be like God, if you wanna have a family resemblance, then we offer mercy. We go above and beyond. We give people more than they deserve. Verse 37, he says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. forgive, and you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. In other words, you are in charge of how you will experience the world. If you give forgiven love, then you will also learn to receive forgiveness, uh, generosity, forgiveness, and love. You can operate in that way. Grace to you. Step into a new way of living. Everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. But if you go out into the world and you say everything is about what you deserve and that's how you treat people, you're not going to experience that kind of grace. Grace to you. Live in a different way. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think what Jesus is saying here, part of what he's saying here is that loving people know how to give Love because they've learned how to receive love. But people who can't love other people, probably it's because they've never learned to receive love. Judgmental people, probably underneath, deep down somewhere, feel like they're very judged. That's why they judge other people. They're living in the meritocracy. They're living in the, this is what we deserve. That's the pace of their life. Jesus calls us to live in grace. If you learn that you're already loved, that you're already forgiven that you're already accepted, then you will be able to then say, I've got a great gift. I can offer that to somebody else. It becomes the pace of your life. Here's how we're going from A to B. I'm not going from A to B and giving people what they deserve. Because I wasn't given what what I deserved. I've been given so much more than what I deserve. Grace to you is such a powerful statement, Paul is saying, based on everything from Jesus. Grace to you, all of your life is a gift. Grace to you, receive it right now where you're at. Everything is a gift for you to receive. Grace to you. May you step into a completely different world view. Grace to you today. Secondly, Paul says peace. Peace in, uh, for, for a first century a Jewish man like Paul Meant deep well-being it denotes wholeness or completeness physically emotionally and spiritually it means on the political level it's saying we're going to try and avoid war by making sure uh, that we uh, we are not we are living justly we are rooting out oppression and injustice and creating a place where people can thrive uh, socially it means that we are um, transcending the quarrels and the fights that we have with other people and we're trying to live right and repair relationships step into reconciliation uh, for, for us individually or spiritually it's for us to find that God is not anxious and worried about our lives and forcing us to be anxious and worried about fixing all the problems. But to hear Jesus say, all you who are tired, who are weary, come to me and find rest, find peace. Because God is not worried. He's not anxious. He's got everything under control and he's offering it to you. Peace to you today. May you be able to trust in the peace of Jesus. Peace to you. May you be able to respond in peace. Peace to you. May may you transcend conflict with love. Peace to you. May you trust and have faith in the God who overwhelms anxiety. Peace to you. And in that greeting, we find uh, that for Paul, where this grace and this peace flows from, it flows from uh, Jesus Christ and from the God who He calls Father. It's in them. That's the source. The source is you know the holy ones set apart who are being faithful, who live in Christ, find that the source grace and peace comes from God, our Father, who is gracious and peaceful. Ah, oh, it's so beautiful that we might be able to receive these things, that this becomes the pace of our life. This is how we live. It's how we make decisions. I get it out there in the world, wherever there is for us, everywhere, there's great temptation to live in such a way of earning and deserving and taking. But Paul's greeting along the lines of everything that Jesus taught was step into the way of grace, the pace of grace, where everything is a gift, peace that God our Father lavishes upon us. And there you start to have a different kind of pace. You don't have to live up to the meritocracy of the world. You don't have to get even with people. You don't have to withhold love. You don't have to become judgmental. Because at the core, you start to accept love, forgiveness, grace, and peace. And the way that you'll know you're living at the pace of grace is when grace to you becomes grace through you. When you get the grace to you and you receive it. This is what Jesus was saying. When you receive it, when you receive love, when you uh, receive forgiveness, when you receive acceptance, now that becomes who I am, it's what can flow through me. And that is how, in our collective in Christ relationships, we build deep community, which has been a big theme for us this summer. Hopefully you're picking up on that. Our commitment to community. That we're coming back as we regather in this time and place. Even over the next few weeks, we're taking some steps in that. And as we do so, not just to attend services but to build community. What kind of community? Kind of community in Christ that is characterized by the pace of grace. I'll close simply with this story that Jesus told, and it's a, a just a story as he was talking to people who were so steeped in the meritocracy of, of the way that they lived and. It meant that their community became very exclusive, kept people out. So uh, I invite people into the, the, the inner parts of relationship who can help me, uh, who are like me, who look good. And Jesus was, was threatening that and saying, man, you're building up this meritocracy. That's not what God wants. He wants a community of grace, which is going to look oftentimes very messy but it's going to be based not on what you can do for me, not based on what you can repay to me, because we can't do that for God. So he wants us to create a community where we tear down those walls and where we live at the pace of grace, where we offer not judgment, but forgiveness, not condemnation, but love where we step into all those ways of living that, to be honest, none of us live up to all the time. We can't, but this becomes our bar. In Christ, this is where we want to go. And as he kind of goes against these religious leaders and says, man, you're so into that and you're so into promoting yourself and getting yourself up to the highest positions. Instead, what if it was about taking the people that nobody else was inviting into relationship and into community and you were just extending grace? Because, by the way, those are the people that Jesus says get it. People who think that they deserve a lot have a really hard time understanding the pace of grace. It's people who have very little else going for them that are ready to accept it. Oh yeah, grace, that's exactly what I need. Turns out we all need to be those people that accept it. So Jesus in Luke 14 said this. He said this to the man who invited him to a banquet. And Jesus often talking about the, the spiritual life, the life of God as a, a party, a celebration of what God has done that everybody's invited to. And he says, when you give a dinner or banquet, when you're the one in charge of deciding who's in and who's out. Do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. That's the the pace of what you deserve. But when you give a feast, when you celebrate, when you have a, a relational time of getting people around the table, when you're dancing and when you're singing and when you're eating and when you're rejoicing in relationship, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the people that nobody else invites, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And that, my friends, is what the pace of grace will look like. So grace to you, and may grace to you become grace through you. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us all these things, love, acceptance, forgiveness. Help us to once again recognize today that everything, all of our life is a gift. To accept it, receive it, and rest in it. And then may that grace to us become grace through us. Extending everything you've given to us to the world around us. Today we say that we are so grateful as we worship and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.